shortest book in the Old Testament. And for a few moments, we want to explore this vision that this man had. How many of you believe in visions? You believe God can give a vision? You believe, yeah, he give dreams and visions. God can talk any way that he wants to. He certainly did that in ancient times, plenty of times. So let's see what the prophet of God heard from the Lord regarding the Edomites. So Obadiah and uh, we'll just we'll start with chapter one. Since there's only one. Okay. <laughs> verse verse one. The vision of Obadiah, thus saith the Lord God concerning Edom. We've heard a rumor from the Lord and an ambassador is sent among the heathen. Arise ye and let us rise up against her in battle. Let's have a word of prayer now. Father, we're grateful for another opportunity to fellowship with the saints. There's no better way to punctuate a day than to look into the word of God. Speak to all of our hearts. Help us to humble ourselves in accordance with your will. We thank you because you're mighty, you're powerful. Thank you that your anointing, it breaks and destroys yokes of every kind. And Father, we are always open to divine interruptions in Jesus' mighty name. Amen, amen. To give you some context, Rebecca was pregnant with twins, Jacob and Esau. When they were born, you remember that Jacob was holding on to his brother's heel. The prophecy given was that the elder would serve the younger. As they grew up, there was tension between the two. Because of a little trickery and chicanery, Jacob had to run for his life. And he ended up going to where his family was originally from in modern day Iraq. Well, he stayed there long enough to develop a family, his own clan. They made their way back. He was worried about Esau, thinking Esau was going to kill him. But the reconciliation was good. However, even though they got along pretty well, the scripture says that because of the prosperity of both of them, the land couldn't bear them. So they had to go their separate ways. And then Genesis 36 gives the lineage of Esau's family. Esau's also named Edom. And they lived in the mountains. Now, the descendants of Esau and Jacob, they pretty much rekindled the old feud. And it was like the Hatfields and McCoys. They just didn't get along. There was trouble. There were problems. The uh, descendants of Esau, these Edomite folks, they're the ones who had kings in their family long before the Israelites ever had any kings. Now That's in Genesis 36, 31. But in the process of time, the Edomites living in these mountains felt that they dwelt in an, in an impregnable location and that nobody could overcome them. And so this is why God gave this vision to Obadiah to deal with their pride. Now, if you've read uh, these verses then you'll know from checking your center column references that you can find similar prophecies about Edom 
in Ezekiel 25 and in Ezekiel 35. But the first five or six verses of this vision are all inside of Jeremiah 49. So the time frame we're dealing with is Obadiah and the people who had to deal with the Babylonian captivity right about the same time, 600 years or so B.C. And just to throw this in, if you're ever trying to figure out the the time frames, the the way that the, the Jewish people put together the Hebrew canon, the oldest prophets, they go from the oldest to the youngest or I should say the oldest books to the youngest. So Isaiah, 800 or so years before Jesus, Malachi, 300 of 350 years or whatever before the Lord. So that's how that operates. But I want us to look at this issue of pride because it's important. Here's what the Bible teaches. Pride precedes destruction. If, if we're going to be prideful people and be too proud to ever say I'm sorry or too proud to ever acknowledge we were in error, then we put ourselves in a predicament where it's going to be similar to what happened here. These folks were filled with pride, didn't believe that they had pride. And as I've heard people say before, pride is the one affliction that you can have. Everybody else knows that you have it, but you don't even know that you're infirmed with it. See, you, you think everything's okay, but everybody else sees That's arrogance. That's a haughty spirit. They feel like they're the only one who's correct. So the first sentence tells us this is a vision. So God is opening up his eyes, whether this was during a dream or during broad daylight. He's able to see and he immediately has images of the Lord speaking to someone who's an ambassador or a messenger. And he's running all around. Telling the nations, get ready to fight, get ready to battle. This is a call for fighting. And God is raising up all these different nations against these uh, Edomite folks. And so the, the rumor is all the heathen people are going to be stirred up. Now, this vision is teaching us that God can stir up anybody. Now, let's never forget, it was the king that brought the Babylonians against the Israelis because of how they were living in ancient times. The Israelites refused to honor the Sabbath. The Bible says when the Lord sent prophets to them to declare the word of the Lord, they would not listen. In fact, they persecuted them, mocked them, even killed some of them. So the Babylonians came and took them captive. So the the word or the message in the final sentence of verse 1 is, let's rise up against Edom in battle. Everybody get ready to fight. That's the word that's being whispered in the ears of kings and people in authority. And in verse 2, the Lord said, behold, I've made you small among the heathen. You're greatly despised. So Here are people that the Lord is taking their fortunes and turning them in the opposite direction. Verse 2 is clear. Past tense, he's made them small. It hasn't been accomplished yet, but in the mind of God, they are already a defeated people. Now, now I'll take that and use that as a situation to describe our fight and our battle against the adversary. No, No matter how we consider our spiritual battles and our warfare, in the mind of God, Satan's already defeated. He's already defeated. It's not, it's not like we're trying to overcome him. We're already in the driver's seat because we're seated in heavenly places. Our role is always to maintain our thinking 
and our faith. Because the devil is defeated. The scripture says Jesus spoiled his powers and principalities and paraded them amongst all of the spiritual hosts so that all the angels know that the devil is defeated. All the demons know that the devil is defeated. And we're supposed to know that the devil is defeated. But we don't live like he's defeated. We, we talk about him as if he's omnipotent, omniscient, and knows all kinds of things and has all kinds of power. So verse 3, here's the condition. The pride of your heart has deceived you. That's self-righteousness. That's self-righteousness. You, you, you that dwell in the clefts of the rock, whose habitation is high, you say in your heart, who shall bring me down to the ground? Here's that pride. Who can ever, you know, usurp my authority? Who can put me in my place? Self-righteousness. That's what pride is. And it, it exhibits itself through the things that we say. So Acts chapter 12, you'll remember uh, Herod, he came out and was giving a speech and the people shouted, it's the voice of a God. And Herod didn't rebuke the people. He lapped it up. And the Bible says the angel of the Lord came and smote him and he died. See, pride. That, that's, not, that's not a good thing. And it, it's deceptive because we honestly believe that in our arrogance, that that is not something that is a, is a vice. We think it's a virtue. Sometimes we think when a person is bold that, that, that that's a good thing. It, it's, it's good insofar as they're bold in the Lord and making their boast in the king. But a prideful person is someone who honestly believes this. Nobody can take me out. I'm the best there is. You know, you, you go back to how Mr. Muhammad Ali used to be. And he'd be in that, after the fight, he'd be in that ring shouting and yelling, I'm the best, I'm the greatest of all time, I'm a bad man. Uh, until he ran into Joe Frazier's right hand. And, and until he ran into Larry Holmes. Until you run into somebody who's bigger, smarter, or better than you are. But pride is what will keep you from preparing yourself for a battle because you honestly believe who can get up here to where we are. And that's that's what that's what happened with this this uh, nation of people or this clan here. So verse four, though you exalt yourself as the eagle. See, the eagle flies high, very high in the sky. You set your nest among the stars. Very few human beings have ever actually seen an eagle's nest in the mountains because it's so high. Very few human beings have ever touched an eagle's nest. And the Lord says, I will bring you down, saith the Lord. There's no place on this earth we can go that God can't reach us. No place. And it doesn't matter what nation on this earth that it is, as tough and as bad as Hitler thought he was, look at how rapidly he fell. With Saddam Hussein, as tough as he believed he was, where did they find him? Crawling around in one of them little underground spider holes. And they pulled him right up out of there, and he ended up going into prison, had his trial, and then was hung. People who think that they cannot be dealt with should read this vision that Obadiah saw because it's humbling. 
And if it teaches us anything, it shows us that it is better to humble yourself in the beginning than wait and be humiliated in the end. See? See? Humility before humiliation. To do what God wants. So verse 4, though you exalt yourself, because that's what they're doing as the eagle, Lord said, I'll, I'll definitely bring you down. And we have a, a verse in Proverbs 29, 23 that says a man's pride brings him low. It does. It, it, it brings him down. So verse five, <clears throat> he's looking and he said, now, look, if the thieves come to you and they came by night, how in the world are you cut off? Which is to say, if, if they're coming to you, you already have to be brought down to a place of despair and all of the land is being raised because would they not have stolen till they had enough? If the grape gatherers came to thee, would they not leave some grapes? There is so much for them to take. They can just keep taking it. I mean, they put it in their pockets. They can run, come back, put some more in their pockets, run, come back. But these kinds of thieves. They're able to take advantage of the Edomites because the Lord lays them bare. And it says that even in Jeremiah 49. How are the things of Esau searched out? How are his hidden things sought up or revealed? Esau was a person who was hairy and was strong. Talking about the person who was born of uh, Isaac and Rebekah. Esau as a clan, these people were ferocious. These people were violent. You'll see this later on. And these individuals had no problem at all saying we're the top dogs on the block, especially up here in the mountains and in the clefts of the rock. But now the the inner secrets of their heart, God sees them because God knows your motives. He knows my motives. He knows whether or not they're pure. There's a verse that talks about how that, uh, you know, a man's heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? Now, now that's true in the sense that in you and in me, there are inclinations and proclivities that given the right temptation would cause us to incline in that direction or even yield. However, once you become a Christian and you submit your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, and your sins have been forgiven, and the burden has been lifted, and God gives you a brand new heart, then that heart isn't supposed to be that sinful and deceitful now, because that old man is supposed to be crucified. You're a new creature now. Old things are passed away. We're not supposed to live our lives in the deceitfulness of pride. No, we're supposed to humble ourselves according to the will and the word of God. But these folks weren't doing that. So we saw in verse verse one that the war is coming to them. Then we see now in verse seven that they're looking to try to resist these different nations. And it says all the men of your confederacy or your your alliance, they brought you to the border. These were men that were at peace with you. They deceived you and prevailed against you that they may eat your bread. And they laid a wound under you and there's no understanding in him. What, what are they saying? All of these other friends of the kings of Edom said, look, let's meet at the border. Let's talk about this upcoming challenge you're going to face. And then when they get there, they make a pact or a treaty. They say, we're going to be on your side. And then they deceive them. So at the same time, they're telling them they're going to help them. They're also sticking a knife in their back to betray them. Have you ever been betrayed? Right. 
Sometimes the, the people that are closest to you or say they're going to stand with you in the midst of your trial, you come to find out later on, you have borne your heart to them, told them some of the deepest things in your relationship, in your marriage or in your personal life. You've told them things you've never told anybody else, but then they turn around and betray you and share that with other people. And when that happens, what do we do? We start building a wall. Because when we get offended at somebody, we, we take a stone or a brick and we lay it here. Somebody else offends us. We take another stone or a brick, we lay it here. If we walk through life being offended, easily offended, pretty soon you have a wall up around you. Can't nobody get to you. You can't get to them. This is why Jesus said, he that walks in love doesn't stumble. Yeah, doesn't stumble. These people were as deceitful as the Edomites were. And they told him, we'll be at peace with you. Yeah, but we're going to turn our back on you just as soon as we get an opportunity, because as it says here, they want to eat his bread. Now, this is what nations do. And this is what diplomacy is all about. This is what government operations are all about. The 30 months that I spent working for two consulates overseas, working for the State Department behind closed doors, the council general would have meetings with all the staff and all the employees of the consulate and tell us, here's what is taking place in this nation right now. Because, I mean, we've got the top secret material, classified material coming across the computers and everything, so we can read what's taking place. But he gives us a report. Here is what is taking place in the country. Here is what we know is happening. But then this is what he would say. Here is what we're going to tell the public. See? And what we're telling the public is not what they're telling us behind closed doors. But here is what we have to say. And it's utter deception a lot of times. And, and nations know that. And, and it's very often a chess game. Who can pull off the greatest amount of deceit? Who can be the trickiest when it comes to all of this? And, and, and we look and we wonder why nations that should be our friends in, in, in reality are not our friends at all. Now, we know from Ezekiel, he prophesies in chapter 38 about the alliances of the nation like Turkey and uh, Russia and all of them. But yet you hear on television, all of them act like they're friends of ours, but they don't care anything about us. No, no, they're waiting one day so they can invade that little country south of them called Israel. And according to Ezekiel, it tells us why they do it, because they want the produce, the fruit and the goods that come out of that nation. They say, why are we suffering up here when we got this nice little bread basket down here that's producing all of this stuff? We can have it. So right here, it shows us that you cannot always trust what the nations are saying. Now, what did Mr. Reagan used to say? Trust, but what? Verify. See, trust, but verify. That is to say, I don't believe a word you're saying. So I'm going to check it out just to make sure that you're not lying to me. Well, verse eight, shall I not in that day, saith the Lord, even destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? So he's telling them that this area that is known for its wisdom and its mighty men, one day they're not going to exist there anymore. Now it says the same thing in Ezekiel 25 and also in chapter 35, that this area was known for the wise sages that they had. 
But the Lord said all of that's going to disappear. Now, you may wonder how in the world can people lose the spirit of revelation and wisdom and lose a heart of understanding? Well, it's easy. You just become blind to who God is. Never forget that the God of Isaac was the God of Rebekah, the same God that Jacob had, Esau had. The difference is Jacob's descendants stayed with God. Edom's descendants backslid and moved away from God. If it's true that the Bible declares that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, if that's just the gateway or the portal to greater revelation in God, if I lose my fear of God, what else do I lose? My wisdom. I lose my wisdom. So if I walk with God, then my heart is inflamed. My heart is illumined by the truth of God's word. But when I turn away from God, I shut my heart out to the truth of God's word. And naturally we lose our wise people. So look at how look at how uh, ingenious I'll say it that way. Our founding fathers were in the sense that they created what I believe is the best constitution planet Earth has ever seen. And, and help form a nation that is absolutely lovely. I mean, Benjamin Franklin said it wasn't perfect, but with all its flaws and defects, it's the best we can come up with. And we still have a nation that everybody's trying to get here because last time I checked, there's not a line outside of the consulate of Uganda with, with people standing there at three o'clock in the morning trying to get there. And, and I don't see any images of thousands of people standing in line to try to immigrate to Norway. But you can go to just about any embassy on planet Earth and by three o'clock in the morning, those folks are going to be in line with all their papers because they're trying to get to America any way they can. They got documents that are signed. But the same mind or mentality that helped form this nation and create our Constitution. We have people today in power that want to see that whole thing redone or cast aside. And these are people that don't have a heart for God, and they certainly don't have the kind of genius that people had 200-something years ago. Yeah. So this, this is what I'm getting at. We have lost in our nation the kind of wise men and mighty men that Israel had and other nations had when people were serving God. And so we're left with the kinds of people who not only don't know God, they're not interested in knowing God. Look at verse nine. The mighty men, old Teman, shall be dismayed to the end that every one of the mount of Esau may be cut off by slaughter. If you turn off the lights of God's revelation in the dark, you're going to have nothing but strife. Because pride is, as the Bible teaches, with pride comes contention. Contention. And we have that today in our own nation. I'm just using our nation because this is where, where we all live. But you, you think about it. There's, there's not a lot of humility uh, amongst uh, people in power or people on the streets. When you turn on the television and you see Antifa and Black Lives Matter and sometimes various militias or, or whatever different kind of groups that, that are parading all of their banners and stuff like that, you're not dealing with people that know God. They all talk God's language, but, but all of them are prideful. Every one of them believe I'm the best. No one is greater than me. Our race is superior. If our race isn't superior, our thinking is superior. So all of that pride is producing contention. 
And so we got a nation on fire and we have people killing each other. I think Tiffany told me the other day what Chicago has 875 murders so far this year, 875 more than all of the major capital cities of Europe. And the people on television are fighting one another over things that have nothing to do with solving their problems because pride doesn't allow people to see where the fault lays. Deceived by the pride of their heart. So verse 10, your violence against your brother Jacob, shame shall cover thee for thy violence. Shame shall cover you and you'll be cut off forever. Now, why would one clan attack another clan when they're all related? Because pride causes you not to even care about your own kin, your own blood. And violence, of course, we're, we're talking about physical stuff, you know. Way back when it was talking about the uh, thieves and robbers in that other verse, there's a difference between a thief and a robber. A thief is somebody who's coming with stealth, likely in the middle of the night and try to get it secretly. A robber is somebody just going to violently attack you in broad daylight or at night. They will physically harm you if they have to. There's a distinction in the Hebrew and there's a distinction in English. So here we have violence against thy brother. Okay, so... Cain killed Abel. The spirit that was in Cain never left the earth. Never left the earth. Abel died. Eventually Cain died. But the spirit that was driving Cain remained in this earth. In Noah's day, the scripture says violence covered the earth. Man's imagination was evil. God looked at all of these folks and said, oh, my goodness, I can't, can't believe I made these fools. Yeah. And, and then and, and then with, with with all of that taking place, he said, Noah, you get your family, you build this ark, you're going in the ark and then I'm going to deal with the rest of this. And with a flood, he destroyed it all. But even when Noah and them got off the ark, that same spirit that was in the giants and was in the people doing violence and wickedness was still in the earth. David had to fight giants again. Caleb had to fight giants again. All of them had to deal with wickedness. And this is why in the last days, the Bible still talks about the devil who wants to steal, kill and destroy. The devil who's been a liar from the beginning. And the Bible says in these last days, there's going to be law breaking. There's going to be a whole lot of sin and wickedness and reprobate minds. What's a reprobate mind? A mind that can't discern between what's right and what's wrong. Why can they not discern between what's right and wrong? Because pride fills their heart and has destroyed their ability to discern. That's why. All of this is, is taking place right now in our own nation. So we see the violence that causes one family to attack another family. You know, not not to just stand up here and beat a dead horse, but think about this. It's holiday time. And this year, there are going to be families who are not going to be able to gather together for Thanksgiving and Christmas because some folks in the family refused to take the vaccine or because some folks in the family decided they wanted to take the vaccine. And you've got moms and daughters at war. Sons and fathers at war, cousins at war. And in some cases, there have been physical altercations. Well, pride is what will cause people to start turning on their own kin. 
Verse 11 through 14, notice what the Lord is saying in that vision. In the, in the day that you stood on the other side, in the day the strangers carried away captive his forces, talking about what happened to Jacob's descendants, the Edomites stood alongside and watched them being taken captive, and foreigners entered into his gates and cast lots upon Jerusalem. You were one of them. See, you, you just stood back and you let the trouble come to Israel and you didn't even try to help your own kin. That's what God is saying through the prophet here. Verse 11, but you should not have looked on the day of your brother in the day that he became a stranger. Neither should you have rejoiced over the children of Judah in the day of their destruction. Neither should you have spoken proudly in the day of distress. Now, that, that's a lot there in verse 11. So I'll, I'll try to hit it quick. The day the strangers carried them away, people from other nations. Foreigners came into Israel took the Israelites away, and when they carried them away, they took them past your mountains. And you didn't even come down out of the rocks and try to defend your own kin. You sat up there in the rocks and you watched the mothers, the fathers, the children being paraded along and some, in some cases being killed. And you all sat up there and laughed and said, this is exactly what these folks deserved. I mean, after all, God, they, their God didn't give the promised land to us. Gave it to them. So their God should be the one looking after them. That, that was the whole attitude. Verse, verse 12. It says here, <clears throat> they looked on that day that they became immigrants. And you should not have rejoiced. Doesn't the Bible say in 1 Corinthians 13, love doesn't rejoice in iniquity? But they were happy to see this happen to some folks, to these people. And, and there are people, I honestly believe, they won't say it with their mouths, but in their hearts, they're kind of happy when misfortune comes to some people. Yeah, that, that, that rascal's getting exactly what he deserves now. She was a scoundrel. I still hate the way, way she treated me back when we were in elementary school. See, that, that kind of a thing. Rejoicing now because a tragedy has come car crash. Somebody lost a child or lost a limb. Now they know how I feel. See, that kind of attitude. Terrible, terrible. But this is what happened here. They rejoiced in the day of their destruction. Now, some of you remember, um, I forget how many years ago it was over in Desperately, they had them tornadoes came down and they were on the south end. Two just kind of did this thing, did that thing. One person lost their life and all that stuff was destroyed. And so right after that, I remember that they were organizing the churches to go over there and, and make food. And so we all went over there one morning, made a bunch of stuff for the workers that were there helping try to clean up. But I, I always remember this one house where that that tornado was so strong that it, it just ripped up the foundation right on out of the ground. I mean, where you have, you know, cement and all that, just all of that pulled out. And there's just no, there was nothing but just mud. OK, can you imagine if, if there were people somewhere who were sitting back thinking that that's exactly what them folks deserve. Because when Tiff and I were telling stories about Deschler to other friends of ours as we were traveling, some of our friends were asking questions like this. What kind of a town is that? As if it must be a very sinful town. See? That, but that, that, wasn't, that wasn't the issue at all. But a, a person's attitude very often can keep them from even wanting to pray. They didn't say we're going to pray for them. They just said, what kind of town is that? What goes on in that little town? See? So here it is. It says here, 
You should not have spoken proudly in the day of distress. If you see someone passing through a difficult time, it's just best not to say anything. Never, ever judge a man or a woman in the midst of their trial. Never judge a man or woman in the midst of their trial. Somebody who's passing through a terrible test or storm, don't say anything because you don't know why it's happening. And you don't know what God may be doing. But one thing we do know, if the person passing through the trial knows God, they're coming out of it. See, They're coming out of it. So be very careful how you pass judgment about this happening or that happening. Because that's what that's what Job's friends did. You remember that? I, I read that story sometime and I think, goodness, that man lost cattle. That, that man lost his children. I mean, he lost wealth and riches. And, and, and then the Lord left his wife. And then the, the one person he left in, her, in his life is the one that was causing him as much heartache as the loss of everything else. Why don't you curse God and die? What kind of pride is that? See? Okay, so verse 13. You should not have entered into the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Thou shouldest not have looked on their affliction in the day of their calamity, nor laid hands on their substance in the day of their calamity. What are you saying? When all of this was taking place and everybody's being led captive, when you folks finally did come down out of the hills, you know what you did? You went right into the city and started confiscating their private properties. Said, let's go through some of the houses of these people. Maybe somebody left some coats behind, some good shoes or sandals. That's what they did. And then verse 14, look, it even got worse. Neither should you have stood in the crossway to cut off those of his that did escape. Neither should you have delivered up those of his that did remain in the day of his distress. So there are two problems here now. Here's the first problem. The children of Israel were being taken away captive. And there were some people saying, I'd rather die than be a captive. And rather than be taken as a slave to a foreign country, they took off and tried to escape and ran for the hills and ran here and ran there. And some of the Edomites had come down out of the mountains and they were saying, look, some of them trying to get away and killed them, made sure they couldn't get away. And then the other ones who were able to hide and were able to stay in a place where nobody could recognize that they were still there. When they finally came out of hiding, the Edomites killed them, too. Can you see the problem here? A lot of pride, a lot of pride. Uh, A nation that does this to people that are close to them, you, you can't expect good things to come out of that. And and it doesn't matter what country it is. If a nation turns upon its own people, turns upon its own kin, then you, you can't expect God to smile on that. It's, it's never going to happen. But pride causes folks to get angry and target people. Now, let's, let's think of this story real quick. There was a, a, a man <clears throat> who was a king, and he had this, this wife, and he wanted her to come visit him. She didn't want to come. So since she didn't come, he banished her, said, you just get away. And um, you can't come in my presence ever again. So he wanted he wanted another queen to replace Vashti. And so in the book of Esther, it tells about how they had what 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 we would call probably the <clears throat> the, the first Miss America pageant. And they just had all these ladies, beautiful ladies getting made up and perfumed and all of this good stuff. And they're going to come and the king's going to choose who he wants. So he ends up choosing Esther and uh Esther had an uncle named Mordecai, and Mordecai was a man of God. 
Well, in the middle of all of this, the king had a servant that worked with him, kind of like a, oh, I don't know, he, he's in charge of some cabinet minister or something like that, named Haman. And, and, and Haman was promoted because of how good he had been in the kingdom. And the king had kind of said, okay, whenever Haman comes around, I want people to bow and acknowledge him and, you know, do pay, pay respects to him. And so he was used to that. He climbed up on his donkey, his camel, his horse, whatever he's on, riding in a chariot. He's coming along and everybody's doing this here and, and people are bowing down and maybe somebody's kissing his hand or whatever they're doing. But, he, you know, he rode past uh, there one time and all these people were bowing down. But there's one man standing there and his name is Mordecai. He didn't even bother to bow. Or pay any respect. So the people said to Haman, because Haman didn't see him. They said, uh, Haman, there's a man over there who's being very disrespectful. And he didn't even bother to, 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 to pay, you know, you the respect that you deserve. Haman said, oh, no, there can't be somebody like that in this kingdom. They said, yes, there is. His name is Mordecai. So Haman said, okay, let's do it again. Get me, get my horses and everything ready. So he made his, his pass again. And sure enough, the people start bowing down, doing all of that stuff. And when they got Mordecai, Mordecai just threw his hands in his pocket. Just looked at him. And, and Haman said, I do believe you're going to get down on your knees. And, and Mordecai just basically with his bodily posture, let him know, I do believe you're mis, misguided. If you think I'm getting on my knees for you. And Haman went to the king and said, king, you got a people in this kingdom that are so rebellious, so disrespectful, I think you ought to kill them all. Now, one man showed him disrespect. He wanted to kill everybody. Everybody related to him. Everybody part of that ethnicity. And the king said, well, okay, hey, man, you're a pretty smart guy. If you think they're troublesome people, sign the decree. And the decree said on such and such a month, on such and such date, if you see a Jew, find a Jew, if you smell a Jewish man or woman, you can kill all of them, kids and everybody. And the, and, and the paperwork is going all around the kingdom. I mean, all different countries and the runners are carrying this stuff. And Jewish people are looking at this and they're crying and crying. And finally, Mordecai finds out he, he, he's got to go and, and talk to the Lord about it. He talks to Esther. She pronounces the fast. Even the cattle had to fast three days. Wouldn't even let the cattle eat or drink. And when it's all over, Haman who had specially built these gallows from which he expected to hang Mordecai because of the plan of God, Haman himself ended up hanging from. Now, here, here, here's the thing. The one thing about pride is that <clears throat> when, when people are digging a ditch for somebody else, they don't realize they're digging it for themselves. Most leaders are like that. Jesus said, if you live by the sword, you'll die by the sword. And in nations where people begin to attack their own folks and their own kin and their own relations, they don't see that the sword is actually swinging back and forth, getting ever closer to them. They have no idea. See, if we can just humble them and bring them into a place of submission, we can control them and we can own them. But they don't realize that same sword that can take other folks' lives can also take their own. And, and our nation hasn't quite, quite learned that uh, presently because they're doing everything they can to get people fired from their job. See? They're doing everything they can to get uh, people uh, to have to pay 
fines and all of these things. And the whole time in the blindness of their pride and in their rage, they honestly think that 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 God is on this side, even invoking God. They're talking about Jesus in the middle of this. Sometimes when I hear people talking about this without even knowing that that kind of pride will destroy people one by one. Yeah, no doubt. Verse 15, for the day of the Lord is near upon the heathen, all the heathen. As you have done, it shall be done unto you. Your reward shall return upon your own head. Now, he said that in ancient times. That applies now. The day of the Lord is upon the heathen. One day, the trumpet of God is going to sound. And when it does, the church is going to be gone. That's First Thessalonians 4. That's going to inaugurate the day of the Lord. What is the day of the Lord? The day of the Lord is also known as the wrath of the Lamb of God. Revelation 6. Final few verses there. The wrath of the Lamb. What's the wrath of the Lamb about? The judgment upon heathen nations. It's about Israel being dealt with because of their rejection of the Messiah. All of that's going to take place. And in blindness, people don't see that the day of the Lord is approaching. Yeah. We know so much about the coming of bad weather and its arrival because of satellite images in television. Think of the people that lived out here 150 years ago and had no way of knowing the storm was coming and didn't know the signs. People coming from back east who had never been in weather like this, had no idea what was coming. People that were trying to make their way westward, maybe to go to California or something like that. And because they didn't understand the weather or because they had problems during their journey, they ended up getting stuck here in this part of the world. And inclement weather came upon them quickly before they could ever build a house. Yeah, the day of the Lord is near upon all the heathen. They don't see that one day the wrath of God is going to descend upon this world and they have no idea that it's coming and they don't even understand why it's coming. Yeah. Sinful people honestly believe their sins aren't that bad. We know better. So verse 16, as you've drunk upon my holy mountain, so shall the heathen drink continually. Yeah, they'll drink and they'll swallow down. They shall be as though they had not been. They're going to be like a drunk, staggering man that, that whose insides are never filled. Drinking and drinking with an insatiable appetite, never, ever receiving enough. But then with everything he says about Mount Seir, he now contrasts that with Mount Zion. Verse 17. He says, but upon Mount Zion, there'll be deliverance and holiness in the house of Jacob. They'll possess their possessions. So Mount Zion is totally different than Mount Zair. Mount Seir is where you have self-righteous, self-exaltation, where you have pride. But Mount Zion is where you have the presence of God and you have humility and the glory of his presence. And that's where we want to dwell. We want to dwell in Mount Zion, even in a world that is turning its back upon God. We want to be carriers of the glory of God, no matter where we go. We want to radiate and shine the light of Christ. We want to be the city that's set on the hill because verse 17 says upon Mount Zion, there shall be deliverance. The church should be the place that is not a referral system, but is a place that brings deliverance to people. Health, healing, power, blessing, salvation. And then you can see where it says holiness because the people in Eden weren't living that way. 
So God expects us to live a life that's separate, distinct. What does it mean to be holy? To live a life that calls you to stand out. To live a life in accordance with God's will. By holiness and by living holy, I do not mean trying to meet some someone's criteria or standard of appearance. Some people think that's what it is. Have to look this way, act this way, talk this way. No, I'm saying it's the conformity of your life to the word of God as the spirit of God convicts you and brings to your mind and heart the revelation of what is holy, what is unholy. And as you live for God, there'll constantly be a growth in grace and in knowledge. And after 40 years, I guarantee your life will be totally different than it was the first day you got saved. Because the first day you got saved, there were a whole lot of things you didn't see wrong. But as you walked with God and as you stayed on the path of righteousness and the word of God is, was taught to you and proclaimed to you, then you realize, OK, well, maybe. Maybe I shouldn't be saying this like that or I shouldn't be doing this. I mean, if you're if you're if you've been in church 50 years and you're 75 and you still don't know, you probably shouldn't wear the shortest miniskirts. You, you, you'll get it if you hang around church long enough. There's some, there'll be somebody come along and mention something eventually. The Spirit of God will help, help, help you know, know that. If, if, if you're a guy and you've been in church all of your life and, and you still hadn't come to the, to the realization that when the Lord said it's good for a man to have a wife and he that finds a, a wife finds a good thing, if, if you don't realize he's only talking about one, okay, and he's not talking about two and three at a time, you hang around church long enough, you'll learn, you'll learn this. But, but, but there are people who have been in church a lot of years and have never learned what it is to allow the light of God to manifest in their life. And, and this is why you find people who've been in the Sunday school for decades and they're still as mean as a Rottweiler. Yeah, after all these years, still absolutely mean because they've never allowed God's word to work in them to sanctify them, to set them apart from what's unrighteous. But verse 18, the house of Jacob shall be a fire, the house of Joseph a flame, the house of Esau a stubble, they shall kindle in them, devour, and they shall not, there shall not be any remaining of the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken it. So what does fire, what does fire do? It purges, it purifies. What does it leave behind? Stubble. When, when you see in the spring when people set the fields on fire, then you go and you stand and look at the field afterwards, all you see out there is stubble. That's it. Ash and stubble, burnt stuff and stubble. The Lord is saying the flame, the power, the anointing, the blessing that's upon the house of Jacob, that is going to burn like a fire and there won't be anything left of Mount Seir and the Edomites, but everybody's going to know that the descendants of Jacob are around. So Christians may be persecuted presently. And we may suffer all kinds of difficulties around the world because of our faith in God. But I can promise you the one remaining thing that is going to be eternal is going to be his church. His church. Yeah, it's immortal because we're connected to him that's eternal. Now, verse 19, then, is talking about all the people from the different directions who've going to come and own uh, the Mount of Esau. And the reason for that is uh, when people don't do what they're supposed to do, then what they own usually ends up in the possession of other people. I can give it to you this way. If God blesses you with a nice house and then you've got a good job, 
and you're paying a mortgage on that house and you got a car and so on and so forth. If you maintain a good, healthy lifestyle walking with the Lord, he'll keep blessing you. But if you turn around, decide you're going to turn from God and then develop some bad habits and then a few addictions. And before you know it, the money that was going to tithe and going to offerings in different places is now going uh, to your private vocations and hobbies and all of that. Pretty soon you're going to start missing the bills. Then you're not going to pay for the water. Then you're going to get behind on your utilities and your light. And pretty soon you're going to get behind on your your mortgage. And after that, then you're not going to be paying your car bill and you'll get so far behind that it accumulates so big. And you start thinking, I'm never going to catch up. So I might as well just go ahead and use my money for whatever I want. And then you'll go out there one day and the car will be gone because the repo man will have come in the middle of the night. And the bank will come and get that house and let you know you're leaving. This is what happened to. Edom, these folks in their pride walked away from God, forgot about God, and God said, okay, since you're not interested in me, all that real estate that I gave to your ancestor, Esau, you're not worthy of holding on to that. So you can, you, you can say goodbye to it. And the captivity of the host of the children of Israel shall possess <clears throat> that of the Canaanites. The Lord is saying he's going to turn it around and reverse it. And saviors are going to come up on Mount Zion to judge the Mount of Esau. Saviors, what are those? Those are the ones you read about in the book of Judges. Deliverers, people who came to fight for Israel against the Moabites and the Philistines. The Lord is saying that in this particular day, Israel is going to have some people that's going to stand up and and fight for them and battle for them. Be able to wage war for them. Now, for us as a church, here's how we see it. God does this for us through individuals that are in Christ. Because we may all need a savior or deliverer. I'm not talking about Jesus or somebody being equal to Jesus. I'm saying that if we're in Christ, we are witnesses and you can bring salvation to anybody you take the time to witness to. You don't have to wait and tell anybody. Wait till we get to church on Sunday and we're just going to pray and expect God to do something for you. Absolutely not. Say right here, standing in the middle of the bank. Come on, let's pray right now. Expect God to move. That's the key. Mount Zion should be inhabited with people that know their God because they will do exploits. So when I look at this, I, I can't help but recognize as a contrast between these two mountains. What God wants to do with Mount Seir and what's going to happen with Mount Zion. But uh, but I've learned folks on Mount Zion are going to abide forever. But folks on Mount Seir with the pride, they're only going to be here for a season. Yeah, only for a season. You remember what happened to Nebuchadnezzar? That man was walking around one day looking at his beautiful gardens, thought it was absolutely amazing. And he didn't want to hear the rebuke of God from anybody. But yet. One day he's looking at it all. Suddenly a voice spoke and let him know he's going to be humbled. Before you knew it, Nebuchadnezzar says his, his hair grew out like feathers on a bird. You know, can you imagine just becoming that hairy and everything? And it says that his nails just grew out like talons on an eagle or something. And he, he, he just all of a sudden he lost his mind and he's down on all fours. And here is a king, and this king is just kind of wallowing around out in the wilderness because he was driven out there because of his pride, lost his mind. 
I think it's in Ecclesiastes that says something like this. A strange thing that I've seen. I've seen servants on horses and kings walking beside them. You know what he's saying? The king ought to be on the horse and the servant ought to be walking beside it. But everything's in reverse right now. That's what he's saying. And no one like Nebuchadnezzar should be a king or royal figure and crawling around like a four footed animal. But yet he was until God spoke and reversed the whole situation and put him back in a position of power, restored his mind. And Nebuchadnezzar said, there is no God as great as Daniel's God. Yeah. Folks, don't think God can't turn it around. I know it looks bad with a whole lot of things, but I'm just saying uh, God has a way of turning things around. That's why he said we should pray for our nation. Don't ever get to thinking that that the Lord has turned this thing over to the devil, lock, stock and barrel. God simply needs somebody to speak the word. Yeah, speak the word. He needs some lively stones in all of these valleys of dry bones. Somebody that will declare his word. Declare the mind of God. And we'll see what happens after that. Wasn't that an interesting vision? How'd you like to go to sleep and see all of that? Oh, my goodness. That, that, woo-wee. Who would you even tell it to when you woke up the next morning? You know, you try to share that with somebody. They say, oh, I think you had too much pizza last night. All right. Okay, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. We know that it's true. And God, help all of us to be humble in your presence and in your sight. And God, if you see any self-righteousness in any of us, please forgive us. Uh, God, it's our desire to humble ourselves at the foot of the old rugged cross. We know that you said that it's through our weakness your strength is made perfect. And that the one that humbles themselves would be exalted. And so, Lord, we know that promotion comes from you. It doesn't come from any general direction. We ask you to open the doors you want us to pass through. Let your favor be upon us. Use these hands in the prayer for the sick. Use these lips in our witness to those that are lost. And pour out your Holy Ghost in your true church. In Jesus' mighty name, amen, 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 amen.